the screens, we have some, some more announcements for you. Welcome to church at Briargate. We're excited that you're spending your Sunday morning with us. If this is your first time, please fill out a connect card found in the back of the seat and put it in the offering plate or in the basket outside of the church office. Here are some events coming up. There's a youth parent meeting tonight after youth service at 7.30 in the sanctuary. Join Pastor Josh and Pastor Liz as they discuss what 2019 holds for the youth. Due to inclement weather last week, the ladies' luncheon has been rescheduled for this Tuesday at noon in the foyer. Join us for a free lunch. The Ladies Adore Life group will begin this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Decadent Dessert off Voyager. We will walk through the book, Adored by the God Who Sees Me. Contact Allison at cabag.org if you're interested. Our all-church vision night and potluck dinner is Wednesday, February 6th at 7 p.m. Bring a dish to share and come hear some vision casting from Pastor. Also, bring some ideas to keep pushing Church at Briargate forward. Thanks again for worshiping with us today. If you have any questions about Church at Briargate, please email office at cabag.org. We will answer your question or we will direct it to the appropriate person. You can also follow us on our website, churchatbriargate.org, and stay connected with us on social media. We hope that you will consider being part of the Church at Briargate family, and we hope to see you soon. Have a great week. When Lily, my granddaughter Lily, came along, Lily and I had spent a lot of time together. And whenever she was afraid or whenever she was sad or anything, she would crawl on my lap. And I would sing to her, uh, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. And that was so precious to both of us. And even when she was older, she'd come and crawl up beside me and say, Grandma, sing Jesus to me. Along comes Maya, her daughter, in 2017. By this time, I had had thyroid surgery, and they messed up my vocal cords, so I couldn't sing anymore. It made me so sad. Right before Christmas, I had an opportunity. I had Maya with me, and she was sad to be in the car seat, and she was crying. And, and I said, okay, Lord, I know I can't do this, but I'm going to try. And so I started singing to her, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. It was awful, but she immediately quieted and was, was comforted by that. And I realized at that moment that there's more than, it's more than just that song being comforting. It's the name of Jesus. And I can even calm my own spirit by singing that song because just his presence with me is so real. This year we are focusing on the stories and testimonies of the people in our church at Briargate family. What has God done in your life? What is God doing in your life? Email office at cabag.org to start sharing your story. So uh, Christine, who you just heard, she's one of our board members here, and, and uh, we do want to, we, so when I grew up in church, we had this, these uh, things that we do, usually on Sunday nights, we had Sunday night services and we would have testimony services, 
And um, everybody would get up and talk about what God's doing. And I, I, re- I always enjoyed those. There was always, you know, a couple, you're like, what? That sounded like you were praising Satan. But, you know, besides those, uh, they, they were really good opportunities. Well, with two services and, and, um, and I'm a little bit of a control freak, when you put that together, we're going to be doing this on video, uh, give you an opportunity to really say, this is what God is doing in my, in my life. This is what God has done, and some kind of miracle or, or just part of your testimony. And, and we're going to be putting that throughout um, well, we're going to do this regularly, but we're going to put specifically, this is how I got saved. This, we're going to put some of those in there. This is that moment. This is, this is when I got it, that kind of that aha moment where, where Jesus uh, becomes real to you and, and you make him your savior. And so, so we've, uh, there's, places, there's places you can go online and look at this, look at some more information, email the office, let us know uh, what it is. And then also, let me throw this out here just because... Um, It'll be better for me to say this now than to deal with this individually. We do have to edit and do some things like that, so don't get mad at the office if if uh, you felt like they didn't capture everything. There is time things and stuff like that. We want to make sure that that, that we make you look as good as possible too uh, in the process. So so we're, we're excited about this. We're excited because you have some pretty amazing things that God has done. Uh, anytime I'm talking about something and, I, and I'll say, many of you in here have experienced this, everybody's nodding their head and doing things, well, we want to hear what those are, kind of things. We had a great evening last Friday night, the, uh, our men's rally here, and we had um, Major General Fuller was the speaker for that, just a wonderful job. Uh, th- that guy is sharp, amazing, solid, solid Christian man. It's the kind of things where, where it gives you um, good confidence uh, in the bigger picture sometimes, in the bigger picture of, of um, military, bigger picture of just, uh, you know, that whole Washington thing that happens sometimes, uh, that, that God has got some pretty amazing people out there in some really great responsible positions uh, that, that are doing some pretty powerful things. In fact, one of the little things that he said that, um, that, was, that was, it caught my attention. I don't know if anybody else was it captured him the same way, but he was talking, somebody asked, one of the guys in here asked him a question about, did, did you ever struggle with, with uh, superiors that weren't Christians, that harassed you for your Christianity? And uh, he said, yeah, he said, when, this was quite a few years ago, General McChrystal that's been on the news so much, you know, he said, that guy's an atheist. He said, he's a very, very liberal atheist. And he said, and, you know, I'm a general, but he's a bigger general. And uh, he's a four-star, and, and this guy's a two-star. And he said that for seven years, he would talk to him and talk to him about Jesus. And he said he's a great guy, and he's a good leader, but he's just an atheist. And he doesn't understand why Christians uh, think the way they do. And he said, and it was harassing sometimes. I was, I was encouraged that, you know, he, he, he walked through that, he dealt with that at the highest levels of leadership. This isn't like the, the guy working at McDonald's as a manager harassing. This is a two-star general being harassed by a four-star general. That's a, that's, a, that's a different kind of concept of thinking sometimes. So, so guys, uh, if, if you weren't here, you missed it. That's part of the reason I'm saying this. You missed some pretty cool things. Uh, it, it was just a great evening. So, and and to, to remind you again, on February 6th, we want everybody here. It's a Wednesday night. We want everybody here. We're just going to talk about where we're going as a church, doing some vision casting. Some of the stuff I've talked about over the last two weeks, but we're going to give a lot more details. And we're also wanting to hear some um, discussion and some input, some ideas uh, from all of you, and this is something specifically we want all of our leaders and our, and people that are working within the areas of ministry in our church to be involved with. So, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about repentance this morning. 
mostly because everybody loves it when I talk about that particular subject. Um, this is, this is a, uh, something that I didn't really... I understood what repentance was and those kind of things when I was growing up. And, and, uh, but to me, repentance was really always... It was kind of limited. This is part of repentance, but it was very limited for me. Repentance for me meant I had done this horrible thing and I didn't want to go to hell. So um, I would repent. Right? And, and this started young in my life. It, it sounds silly to say it at this point. You know, I was, you know, I was seven years old or something and I had done a horrible thing. And, um, and I would repent because I didn't want to go to hell. But in reality, it's the same for a seven-year-old or a, or a 67-year-old. Um, that, that there is such a thing as not uh, uh, stepping away from God, saying, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to rebel, I'm going to sin. I'm gonna, a, a seven-year-old can rebel and sin just like a, a 70-year-old, right? And so when we look at this, that's one part of repentance. There's a lot more to repentance that, that I want to walk us through. And, and some of the um, kind of the whys and the, and the what about repentance. And part of the reason I'm looking at this is because repentance is something that it seems to be uh, escaping us as the church lately. I'm not saying church at Bargate, but again, obviously we're part of that. But just the church in America, some, the idea, the concept, the importance behind repentance, not just somebody saying, Jesus, forgive me, but, but the idea behind it, the, 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 the big picture of what repentance is, seems to be becoming elusive to us. And so I, I was looking at a lot of different things of repentance, a lot of different descriptions. This is out of the Oxford Dictionary. It just says the act of repenting. I thought, well, that is a great definition. Now I understand it. The action of repenting, sincere regret or remorse. And, and it dawned on me as I'm reading that, that's not really capturing what repentance is. Uh, the, the action of repentance, why do you even, why, why do you even put that in the definition? But <clears throat> But sincere regret or remorse, this is one of the, the things that I think can be uh, embraced by people when, when we're looking at repentance. But if that's all it is for you, regret or remorse, there's something missing. There's actually a lot missing. And, the, and part of the purpose of uh, repentance is not just because you feel that, you're, uh, that you feel sorry for something. It's not that you just feel regret. That if that's all there is for repentance, you've just wasted your time. You feel something. That's not repentance. This is, this is one of the things that I, that I think really pushes in and attacks the way we look at, at Christianity and, 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 and God and, and ourselves, Jesus, the Bible, is we are really built a lot in culture today. We're really built upon just a feeling about something. Do I, do I feel something? It doesn't matter whether there's an action taking place. It doesn't matter whether there's some kind of um, accountability to something. It's just, do I feel something? As long as I feel something, then that's good. And, and, then it, and then it's kind of limited to us. Do I feel something? It doesn't matter about anybody. Do I feel something? This is me. It's important for me. Well, what about if somebody else feels the exact opposite? It doesn't matter. This is what I feel. And so <clears throat> looking at, and, and kind of looking at uh, repentance for us as Christians, I really do believe that it's, it's very foundational. It has to be the foundation of who we are. So here's some questions. Why would God need us to repent to be saved? Why? Think about this. 
And I think that's of these three questions, that's actually the easiest one to answer. Why would God need us to repent to be saved? But oftentimes we, we limit repentance. In fact, there was a bunch of stuff written online. I just was Googling things. And so most of the concept of repentance was limited to one thing, um, uh, asking uh, God to forgive you so you can get to heaven. That was the, the, so you can be saved. That's the entirety of the way most of the church world looks at repentance. I can be forgiven so I can get to heaven. And that's not, the Bible talks a lot more about this subject than that. Okay, so here's another question. Why would we need the attitude of repentance specifically right now today? We as human beings and the attitude of repentance, not just um, the action of repenting, but why would we need the attitude of it? And then what does repentance actually accomplish? And that's where I'm going to walk through probably the most of this is really looking at what does repentance accomplish? In the end of, in the, end of the subject, uh, what, is it, what is it doing? What is the results? What, is, what happens? This is, this is one of the things, again, I try to pick on this every now and then. Oftentimes in, the, in, the, in spiritual things, in church world and stuff like that, we don't like to uh, think about being results-oriented. What is, what is accomplished? This is one of the things with ministries. I talk about this with our leaders around here um, every now and then is if, if you cannot uh, quantify and qualify where you're trying to get to, you, you're never going to get anywhere. How do you know what the goal is? Well, we, we just want to reach the Lord. Just, we just want to worship the Lord. That, that, that's, it's too vague sometimes. Well, we just want to be good Christians. Too vague. How do you define that? What is a good Christian? What is not a good Christian? I want to serve Jesus. How do you define that? Do you have quantifiable and qualifiable goals uh, in anything? That's like saying, I, I want to, um, you, you get a new job and they say, what do you want us to pay you? I just want you to pay me lots. What's lots? Well, it's just, you know, a lot, a good amount, a good amount. I want to feel good about the amount you, give a number, just give a number, specific number, and now you at least have forward or backwards where you want to go. You have a number. Same thing with, with uh, how, how many people do you want to get saved this year? How many people do you want to see? Well, it's, that's, that can be an a, um, irrelevant number to anybody, but it becomes relevant to you when you start putting names to it. Well, I've got a, I've got a cousin that's not saved. My parents are not saved. That's, well, so you name five names. Well, you want to see at least five people get saved this year, right? You see what I'm saying? You can quantify things. What do I really want to see happen this year? Um, put money in savings. What do you want to do? How do you want to buy a house? Okay. Well, to buy a house, you need this amount of down payment. Well, then you have a goal. You have a quantifiable goal. It's the same thing in spiritual walk. It's the same thing with everything. Can you quantify something? Can you qualify and say, this is where we're trying to get to? What, what is this accomplishing in my life? Okay. So let's look down through some statistics and let you, let you think about some of this. First, and then, uh, and then I'll jump into this. Uh, this is uh, all from Barna Research. There's a lot of places you can go. In fact, I, I had a bunch of stuff, and I just cut a bunch of it out because it was just a lot of statistics. Um, I like statistics, but I know most people don't. There's three things that I think that, that are the foundation of the concept of repentance. In society today, there's, these are the three main things that are going on in people's thought processes. Number one, there is no God. Number two, there are no absolutes. You understand what I mean by absolute is that did you get to a point where there is 
there is a, like, a, like for uh, morality, an absolute would be a right or wrong, that this is always wrong under every single circumstance, right? This is what you call situational ethics, where this is wrong most of the time except for this time, right? I'll give you a good example, and this one, everybody in here would react differently to this. Um, movies and TV do a lot with this nowadays, is... <clears throat> Um, let's say you've got a, um, a wife that's being physically abused and uh, she eventually ends up um, shooting, killing her husband. Okay? Depending on how they frame that story in a movie or a TV, you make decisions on whether you believe that's right or wrong. You see what I'm saying? You make decisions on that. There, there's a TV show nowadays that's all about um, women that snap and, and kill their husbands. That's, that's, a, that's a series, okay? Um, I was watching part of this the other day. I'm sitting in an, in an office here in town, and it's on the TV, and I'm watching this. And, it's, and the way they described it, this woman snapped and killed her husband. And the, the actual story was the husband had, had abused her and all this stuff, and then moved away, and five years later, she tracks him down and kills him. I'm like, I don't, is that really snapping? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not trying to make a decision whether, you know, I, I'll be quite honest. If, if it's my daughter getting beat by her husband and she shoots him, I don't know. I'm upset about that. Right? But here's the thing is, we begin to play in our minds, depending on story, depending on situation, all this, and we actually have, in America, it's very much part of our culture, situational ethics. Is there such a thing as something being wrong all the time, under all circumstances? I'll give you another simple example. Um, abortion. Okay? The, the conversation used to be, I didn't like it then, didn't agree with it then, but it's led to other conversations over time is, well, what about if the mother has been raped? Uh, she doesn't want the child to so let's, let's kill the baby because the mother didn't want the baby in the first place, didn't, she was raped. That became like part of the conversation. So what we're doing is, and obviously if you're paying attention to the news at all, what just happened in New York this week has proved without a doubt that none of these conversations we've been having for a long time now are actually the subject that, that is leading to whether abortion should happen or not. In cases of, of rape or, or uh, uh, how long into the present, pre uh, pregnancy or whatever. When New York basically says, and, and this, I, 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 this bothered me as much or more than anything has bothered me in a long, long time this week to watch them vote in New York that you could abort a baby up to the, the time of birth. All right, now they put a little uh, caveat on there, you know, in case the mother's uh, physically threatened or whatever the case is. But do you really think, you really think that has anything to do with it? Up to the day of birth. And then, and this is what got me the most, is all of the people that were standing there when, when he signed that, that were cheering cheering this how oh, that gutted me and then on the 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 trade tower they lit it up with pink shouldn't they have lit it up with 
a bright red for the blood of all these babies? Is, what it, is, that, is, there, is there a time when abortion is okay? This is, this is what our country has come to, and we've basically decided it's okay under all circumstances. And I believe it's not okay under any circumstances. Doesn't matter. Rape doesn't matter. Rape's a horrible thing. Mom doesn't have to keep the baby. But that doesn't mean we kill an innocent person. All these things that are going on with, is it right or is it wrong? No absolutes. That's part of our country right now. No absolutes. We'll decide in the moment whether we like it or not. And the third part, and these are obviously all feed, feed each other, I can do what pleases me. That's the foundation of our country. I'm going to do what pleases me. I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to do what pleases me. Okay? 35% of Americans believe that moral truth is absolute. 35%. That means 65% don't. That they don't believe that there is something that is, that is absolute about moral truth. That, that you know, that the, part of the thinking nowadays is that we create this stuff. I, I used to hear this years ago about marriage. Well, marriage was a, a man-instituted thing. It's not, there's nothing, it's just man created that. No, he didn't. God created that. We go all the way back to the garden. God created marriage. He, he literally says that, uh, that a man would leave his mother and his father and cling to his wife. Okay? This is before, you've heard me talk about this before. God says that to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't have any parents. God says, using Adam as the example, a man will leave his mother and his father. Who is Adam's mom and dad? What, he's, what God is doing is he's establishing something. He says, this is, this is how it goes for humanity. 80%, 86% of Americans believe that to be fulfilled in life, you must pursue what you desire most. That's how you're fulfilled, is what you desire. You pursue what you desire. Now, this sounds good in, in the topic, right? You, when you first say, at first glance, that seems like a good deal. Except that 86% of the people are saying, what's important to me overrides anything else. That the way that I am fulfilled is not, not uh, pursuing something that could benefit others, even if I don't necessarily like it. That what is most important, the only way that I can live my life healthily and successfully is if I'm doing what makes me happy under all circumstances. 86% of our country believe that. 69% of our country believe that any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is okay. I didn't say between a male and a female. It said 69% of Americans believe as long as there are two adults that are consenting, doesn't matter. It's okay. And this is a big one. 13% of Generation Z, Generation Z are late teenagers, early 20s right now. 13% of Generation Z are professed atheists. That's more than twice as high as any generation before. Professed atheists. 37% of this same generation believe it is impossible to know if God is actually real. Almost 40% of this generation thinks it's, it's a 
And, and by the way, it's irrelevant. It's not only can you not know if God's real, it's just real relevant. It doesn't matter. You believe what you want, I'll believe what I want. It doesn't matter. This is why I believe that, minds, that uh, repentance has to be a mindset and a direction. You guys also know that this generation coming up now is the most uh, uh, biblically illiterate generation of any generation ever before. That's, that's a scary thing, too. Which is why you're coming up with some of these statistics, right? So Ezra chapter 9, this is, this is springboard into the scriptural part of this. Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. Ezra says, I prayed, Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you. For our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests, and that little um, <clears throat> a hierarchy that's mentioned there is important to this. That's why we and our kings, the leaders of our country, and our priests, the, the spiritual uh, mindset and direction leadership of our country, have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced just as we are today. Now look at this again. We are steeped in our sin. That's why we and our kings and our priests have been the, at the mercy of the pagan kings uh, of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced just as we are today. This is a, this is a uh, powerful thing that Ezra is walking through. And um, actually, two or three chapters in a row here, Ezra is repeating some of this same stuff over and over. He, he actually repeats this same thing uh, right above it and right below it. But I, I pulled this one out because he, he encapsulates a little bit better. But he's basically saying that, that um, we are caught up in sin, and that's why there's a couple basic things that are going on. Ezra is saying, as the, the Jewish people, our kings and our priests are being controlled by the sinful kings of the land that we are in. And we are being killed, captured, robbed, all this stuff on a regular basis. Why? Because we've sinned. Now, this is a concept we do not like in today's society. I, I remember years ago, um, <clears throat> a big um, hurricane had hit the coast. Not, not the recent ones, you know, over the last three, four, five years. This was quite a few years ago. Big hurricane had hit the coast. And Pat Robertson of, um, of uh, 700 Club he said on his TV show that uh, this could be, uh, um, this could be uh, judgment from God. This could be a punishment from God. And the church world erupted. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know whether Pat Roberts was, was right at the time. I don't remember thinking to myself, yes, he's right. This hurricane you know, is God's punishment or whatever. Because I don't necessarily believe that uh, just because there's physical calamities or things like that, that that's God's judgment. I do think that God also, you know, built the earth to operate a certain way, right? But I also know, reading Scripture, that God does use those things to punish. He got, he, God does use those things as judgment. It's very clear. Another thing that God uses in judgment, and, and this is not just like in Israel, but this is all over the world, God uses um, armies to capture other armies 
and, and control and, and um, attack other people groups as judgment. He does do that. I don't know. I, I'm not bright enough, and the Holy Spirit hasn't showed me specifically different things. I know when 9-11 happened, there was a big uh, push through the church world that said, um, this is God's judgment upon us. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's right or wrong. I do know a couple basic things. We have pushed God out of our country. We have said we don't want all the basic. These are little indicators of a much bigger subject. We don't want the Ten Commandments in the courts. We don't want prayer in the schools. We want to uh, murder babies. You start doing that stuff over and over. And any time in history you've seen this, God either does it proactively or allows another people group to attack and destroy or hurt this people group. It's very consistent in Scripture. I don't know how that works as far as 9-11 is concerned. I don't know how that works as, as far as uh, a, a, a hurricane or something like that. I, I really don't. And I get those questions. Anytime something happens, somebody, what did you think about that? You think that's God? I don't know. I really don't. But I do know God does that stuff. And I do know that we as a country have gotten so far away from God, and we are pushing and pushing and pushing. When I, I've got younger generation, I'm saying teenagers in early 20s that are saying to me on a regular basis, this isn't coming from the older generations. They're saying to me on a regular basis, you know, America is starting to look just like the Roman Empire right before the Roman Empire collapsed. You should think about that. And they're not saying like politically, because I don't know that most of that age group would, would get that big picture sometimes. But they're saying uh, sin, rebellion. They're seeing something. And this is true. This is right. That there is such a thing as judgment. There is such a thing as God saying enough is enough. There is such a thing as an absolute right. Under all circumstances, that's what absolute means. So what do we do with this? Psalms 51, we're just going to walk down through here because see what, what Ezra captures here is Ezra is recognizing he's not the king of the universe. Ezra is recognizing that the Jewish people have turned against God and they sinned. And they're being, they're being, um, their lives are being persecuted now because of sin. They're being persecuted because of this. And, this, and there's, there's a basic thing that we're going to jump into here in Psalms 51 that Ezra captures here in Ezra 9 is there comes a moment for humanity to make it or an individual human to make it. There has to come a moment when you realize that God is the king and that God is God and we're not. And that sin has been specifically mentioned to us by God. That it is, it, first it's not okay. Second, it is destroying us. And we have to separate from it or we will continue to be destroyed. And this moment that Ezra has is, the, is a humbling moment. He humbles himself. And that is the most challenging thing for us to do as human beings. Is humble ourselves before God. And say, God, this is not okay. The missionary a couple of weeks ago, um, Steve Pike, he and I were talking about this at lunch, and, and <clears throat> one of the things that we're seeing so strongly in the church world today is this, this lack of standing up against true wrong. 
it's, it's interesting to me that, um, and, I, and we talked about this a little, I think somebody asked the general question Friday night about this, but it's interesting that we are so caught up in all of the rights and wrongs of politics and all the rights and wrongs of border walls and all these other things going on in the church discussions today, but we're not having discussions about sin, that sin is destroying us, not from the mentality, and, and this is part of the subject, I'm not trying to make light of this, but not from the mentality of, of I don't want to sin so I, so I can go to heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I, that, is, that is the ultimate truth of that subject. But what I'm talking about is that sin is tearing away at us every single day as a people. That we are being destroyed from the inside out as a people. That, we're, that as Scripture says, and you know when somebody says that the whole LGBT stuff is never mentioned in Scripture, I don't know why. They haven't read it. I don't know why somebody would say that. It's like saying a cookbook doesn't have food items in it. Did you open it? Do you know what's in that book? Because I think there's food items. And, and Paul specifically says, when a man turns against the way he was created and has sex with a man, it's going to, that, and let me put my parenthetical to this. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you spiritually. It's going to destroy you emotionally. It's going to destroy you relationally. The general mentioned this Friday night that when this, when this was being pushed into the military, the, the, um, all of the, the stuff about homosexuality and all this stuff, he said that the military did a bunch of studies and that 76% of all homosexuals, and this was nationwide, not just the military, but 76% of all homosexuals, I'm not saying that statistic right, homosexuals are 76% more likely to commit suicide. Now, I've asked, I, I've asked um, a guy that I know that is gay, I asked him about that. I said, what do you think about that? Does that mean anything to you? And he said that the way that the gay community would frame that is that's because society is persecuting them and that's their response to the persecution. It's not true. It's because their souls are hurting so much inside. There's so much darkness and so much attack spiritually. They don't know what to do with this. Because Paul said they're turning against the way they were created. Turning against. And it's hurting them. But somewhere we have to say, okay, but, but where, where does the church line up on this? Now, you know, I, I, I interact a lot with the LGBT community here in Springs. I, I, I don't go in there swinging, you're all going to hell kind of thing, but I also don't shy away from it. And this is where it's, it's discouraging is the, the, the gay community is hearing so many different messages from the church, and this is their verbalization. I've had this conversation many times that the church is just so flip-floppy that they can't respect the church because of this. Somewhere we have to say, look, this is hurting you. It's wrong. That's why it's hurting you. It's wrong. That's why it's destroying you, because it's wrong. The same thing, I've had this conversation with, with all kinds of people about all kinds of things. You know why, that you, you know why you're struggling? Because lying is wrong. Lying is a sin, and it's destroying you. You know why your relationships are hurting? Because gossip is a sin, and it's destroying you. And, and we don't like to come down on those kind of things. We don't like to discuss that kind of stuff. Because why? 
I can tell you as a pastor, the number one reason pastors don't like to discuss this is because people leave their churches when they have these discussions. Now, I, I don't want anybody to leave the church. It's not where I'm going to go with this. But at the end of the day, is it better that somebody is sitting in a building? Is that, is that important? You're sitting in a building? Well, if you're a pastor, as long as you're sitting in the building and giving money, then you're a good guy for me. Right? Are you following my train of thought? So then it does, I, just, I just need you in the building. Guys, I'm not like that. I'm not wired that way. In fact, it, I, I say things and do things sometimes that I probably push too far the other direction because I don't like that mentality. And, and some of you have said things to me over that, you know, you, sometimes you run people off. I, I know. I don't try to. I don't want to. But I also know that I can't stand the mentality that we don't want God to change us. And that churches are built around the idea of we're not going to try to see God change anybody. We just want people showing up. We just want people here. Why? What is the point? Unless the Holy Spirit is doing something in us. Unless he's changing us. Unless he's saving us. Unless we're going out and helping him save other people. Unless there's that kind of mentality. What is the point? So, so let's look at this. Psalms 51, this is, this is David's response after he has um, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has Bathsheba's husband killed, all this other stuff. This is David's, it takes a while, but David becomes repentant. The prophet comes to him, and remember he tells the story, and he says, um, this guy took uh, this other guy's one sheep, he had one sheep, and he took this guy's sheep and uh, stole it from the guy, and David's like, we should kill this guy. And then uh, Nathan says, okay, but you're that guy. Right? And then David breaks, and he begins to repent. This is, this is what he writes in that repentant moment. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. That, and that really is the only reason that God has mercy on us. Not because of us, but because he loves us. It's his love that causes him to have mercy. It's not because, I, I, I've had people do, do, write entire books about this. I've seen this. Where the reason that, that um, God has mercy on us is because, is because we are redeemable. Because there's something about us that, that uh, God wants to use or something else. Guys, that is not the reason. He... He does do that because he's amazing. But the reason God has mercy on us is because he loves us. That's it. That love transcends anything else. It's not about how wonderful we are, how special we are. That's not even a really a, a common sense discussion because he's the one who made us. So anything that is wonderful about us comes from him anyway. So that's, that's not it. It's because he loves us. No matter how broken, how messed up, he loves us, and that's why he extends grace. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. Verse 2, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. And this is something that, that, is, that this is one of the key ingredients that is becoming more elusive to the church today, is that I need to be washed. Why? why? This is my opinion why I think this is becoming elusive, because for us to acknowledge that we need to be washed means we have to acknowledge that we're dirty, which means something that we're doing, thinking, processing is wrong. 
That's the concept behind if I've got to be washed, it's because I'm dirty. Right? I need to be clean. And here's the tragedy of this. And I think, I think most of us, hopefully all of us, but most of us in here would know this. The amazing thing about being washed and made clean is it is a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful thing. My wife is very adamant. I, uh, she takes a bath every evening. I take showers in the morning. And she thinks that's, she doesn't understand that. She says, why would you want to get into bed, specifically on clean sheets, right? Why do you want to get into bed and you've been all day long, you haven't showered? Now, if I, if I, do, I also do work out pretty much every day and I go and I shower at the gym. But either way, I try to remind her of that. But I, I, there is something about that being clean that feels better than not, Right? Now, different people are different with this. I can't stand not being clean. I can't stand. This is, this is the only thing with me about like going and roughing it and doing that. I have no problem doing all that kind of stuff as long as I can get a shower every morning. I don't care. We can go. I can sleep in an, a hollowed out log. doesn't bother me. I can sleep with animals. I can do everything. But I really need my shower in the morning. I don't like feeling dirty. Well, this is one of the things that, 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 the, that people in your life right now, some of them are very dirty spiritually they're covered with with mud filth and if they could just be clean they would thank you forever for telling them how to do that they could just feel clean he says wash me for i recognize my rebellion it haunts me day and night you notice he does not say, in fact, interestingly, through all of David's repentance, David never talks about um, uh, like being lustful, uh, uh, being, he, he does talk about being a murderer or some, but it's all built in the concept of rebellion. See, the, 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 the basic understanding of things like adultery and, and um, sexual sin and pornography and stuff like that is not the, the, the lust or the perversion that that is the culmination of that. It's the rebellion that starts it. That's a rebellion issue. And David gets this. For I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I struggled with that for years. No, he sinned against Bathsheba too. He sinned against uh, Uriah also. He sinned against his people. But here's what I realized is I don't think... Now, now I, I think you have to define the, the, the terminology sinning against to, to really get this, but I don't think you can sin against another human because I think you can wrong another human. There's no doubt about that. You can definitely wrong another human, but if I'm in sin, you're in sin, we're all part of sin, how do you sin against sin? The reason that we can sin against the Lord and Him only is because He's the only one outside of sin. He's the only one that has never sinned. He's the only one that is completely pure. And so when David says, he's not diminishing what he did to Bathsheba. He's not diminishing what he did to Uriah. He understands that he's done an egregious thing against those people and their families. Not just Uriah, but what about all of Uriah's family? He's, done, he's harmed those people. But when he says before God, it's my rebellion that has caused my sin, and my sin is against you. Because you're the holy God. 
God is also the one that can ultimately, only one that can ultimately hold us accountable for sin. Human beings cannot do that. I can hold you accountable for something you've done wrong to me, but I can't hold you accountable for sin because I'm not, I'm not God. When we stand at the, at the throne of judgment, it's not going to be in other people that we are going to be held accountable to, even though we have harmed other people. Let's, let's get to it quickly. Hitler will not be held accountable by people at the throne of judgment. He's going to be held accountable by God. Hitler has sinned against God, not people. He's destroyed people. And David gets this. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. We don't even know what the judgment is, but he says it's just, which is true, by the way. God's judgment against you is just. God's judgment against any of us is just. Why? Because he's just. Well, what is the judgment? It's, that doesn't matter. God's just. It will be just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me. I don't, I don't really have a clue what that means. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. See, the Lord can purify us from sins. You can't, you can't purify somebody. I can't purify somebody. This is a discussion I've had with Catholic priests before when they, when, and I had, a, I had a good friend of mine years ago that was in the same town I was, and uh, we hung out together. He was a good guy. And uh, he would actually give altar calls for salvation in his Catholic church. He was considered a rebel <laughs> in the Catholic church. But either way, but he, he and I talked about it, and I, and I would talk, talk to him about this because he did believe in, um, in that he could forgive sins as a priest. I said, how can you do that? How can you forgive a sin? Can you wash somebody clean? Can you purify them? What, you, how do you have any power to do that? I can't purify you. Jesus' blood can purify you, but I can't. Give me back my joy again. Why? Because when you sin, it takes away your joy. And I believe it specifically deals with that in that particular arena. This is a big spiritual thing if you ever want to track this down. This, this will help you in a lot of ways and in a lot of different situations in your life. But whatever you've got actually going on at that moment, like you're, um, you're sinning in relationship to your marriage, okay? what that does is that specifically takes your joy away in that thing. Okay, takes the joy away from that. I've had this discussion with pastors over the years. Some of the reasons, not always, but some of the reasons pastors get frustrated and, and, and uh, spiritually tired and kind of depressed as a pastor is because they've allowed sin to come into the specific arena of pastoring. Okay? I'll give you a simple one. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm telling on myself here too, but it's just what it is. It's easy sometimes for pastors to lie to people, although they're not trying to lie to them. But you, you talk to so many people about so much stuff on a regular basis, it's, it's easy to lie to somebody as a pastor. You have to fight against it. You really have to fight against that. You say, well, what do you mean? Lie. I'm saying simple things, okay? Um, I've had meetings all day long, 
It's uh, 6 o'clock at night. I, I've, it's just been, so, some days I go, I don't have meetings with people at all, but some days it's just one after the, one after the other. And somebody calls me up and says, hey, pastor, can I talk to you right now? Now, as a pastor, what I should say is, no, I'm just done. I don't mean it per, to you, but not per, I'm just done. I'm done. I got nothing left. But, and I have sat there like at lunch meetings and listened to a pastor answer the phone and say something like this. Um, uh, no, I got a meeting I got to head to real quick. I say, what meeting are you heading to? Uh, I'm going to spend some time with my wife. Then tell them that. It's not a meeting. Tell them, no, I really need to spend some time with my wife. You understand what I'm saying? So what happens is you can get in habits of doing this kind of stuff. It's the kind of idea where, where um, probably about to get in trouble with this one too. Your wife comes up to you and says, do I look good in this dress? No, no, that's not the way they say it. Does this dress make me look fat? Don't ask those kind of questions. Don't, I, there's no way you win in that kind of, no? Oh, yeah, I know what it makes me, why did you ask me then? So then we say, oh, no, that's a beautiful dress. Even in your head, you think, that's the stupidest looking dress I've ever seen. But you can't say that. <laughs> Thank you, that's beautiful. So, so here's, the, here's, the, here's what we do as pastors, as, di- as different, as people in life in a general sense. Guys, here's what we do is we get caught up in doing things and it starts small, it starts small and then it gets bigger and it's bigger and it's bigger and it's bigger. You see what I'm saying? When you bring sin into a specific arena, it takes the joy away from that arena. It robs you of that particular thing. Instead of Really letting God be in charge of everything. Instead of saying, God, I really need you in charge of everything. Continuing on. You take, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Broken. We, we, we as a people, we need to be broken before God more often. No matter who you are, what you're going through, we need to be broken more often. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. And here's the, here's the big one, creating me a clean heart. You understand that's more than forgive the thing that I did. Get deep inside of me and make it clean. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Because if you're sinning, you're not loyal to God. You see that rebellion thing you talked about earlier? If you're sinning, you're not loyal to God. You're pushing God away to do that stuff. You can't be involved in that stuff and, and be loyal to God. It's like the mentality. I, I've heard this so many times over the years. I've sat with couples that there's been moral failure with the couple, and one of them has committed adultery, and they will sit there and say, no, you don't understand. That didn't mean anything. I really love my wife. I really love my husband. And, you know, I try as a, as a pastor counselor, I try to be, I try not to bring myself into these things. But it's real simple. As a husband, I'm not ever going to believe that statement from my wife. Sorry, don't believe it. You're saying you're loyal to me, you love me, you're committed to me while you're having sex with someone else? And, and I don't understand that mentality. Well, no, I really do love that. No, no, you don't. I know I, I know I don't do everything God says, and I know I'm disobedient to him. I know he's asked me to do this, and I'm not going to do it, and I'm sinning over here. I'm not, but you know what? I really, I really love God. Do you? 
In, in John and in James, this is addressed many different ways that says, if you don't do what God says, you don't love him. You've got to be obedient to God, and that is built out of love, not, not just by going by the rules. It comes from love. He says, renew a loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence. and Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's a huge sentence. Don't banish me from your presence. That's scary. Return to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. I always include this scripture. Usually you could stop right before that and get the big impact. of. But I always include that scripture because it's something that God showed me years ago. My personal life is when I really get before God and I repent and I let him make me clean. He creates a clean heart in me and he renews the joy of my salvation. All these things. You know what? There is a desire for me to tell other people about this. This is one of the things I do not understand when we look across Christianity in America today is we talk about being Christians and the love of God in us and that God wants to do all these things, but the American church is getting smaller every year. There are less people percentage-wise getting saved every single year. In other words, we have this overwhelming population of people that saying that they are passionate about God, they love Him, that He's done all these things in their spirit, but there is no desire to tell somebody about Him. Statistically, we cannot argue with that. So why is there a, I, I love God, I'm serving Him, but I don't care about loss. When he says this here, he says the result <coughs> that happens is, then I will teach your ways to rebels. I will teach your ways to people that are doing the same thing I'm doing. I will teach your ways. And here's something that's interesting. When you see this, um, I, I've, I've Almost any time I've ever seen it, it's exactly the same. You take somebody that's really caught up in whatever, in, in drug addiction or whatever the world's offering out there, and they get saved immediately, they have a desire to tell all their friends about Jesus. Give them a couple years in the church, and they'll lose that. Right? You following that condemning statement I just said? Okay. But when they first get saved, they are still so passionate about their drug addict friend that they got to tell them. they got to tell them. It's after we get in the church and get comfortable in this that we start caring about ourselves and stop caring about them. And then he says, jumping down to verse 17, the sacrifice you desire, the spiritual, church, religious plan of action that you desire from me is a broken spirit. That's what the Lord desires from us, a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, God. Five things I wrote down here. We need humility. We as a country need humility. And that's what repentance does, is it humbles humbles ourselves before God, a holy God. We're not God. You've heard me say this. I pray this all the time. You are God, and I am not. Because there's something about humanity, there's something about my spirit that wants to try to be just as cool, big, and as powerful as God. But I'm not. He's God. Repentance is humbling yourself. That's the number one biggest thing about repentance, is humbling yourself. The second is we need to be cleaned and forgiven. We need to be cleansed, as he said. I've got to be clean. Why? Because I'm not. I'm a sinner. That comes from humility, knowing I'm a sinner. Third thing is we need joy. We need so much more. Peace and joy in our our country right now. We need this, and it it is going away. 
And I believe it's because of sin. We're losing. The fourth thing is we need a transcendent purpose. Serving a God beyond us. Telling people about Him. That this isn't about what makes me happy. It's about what makes God happy. My life is not supposed to be about pleasing me. It's about pleasing God. And that's a transcendent thing. A purpose beyond me. It's not. It's not about. We've got to start teaching this to our kids. This is, this is becoming lost. And I, and I always pick on these things, but these are signs of this. When, when the kid plays a sport and everybody gets a trophy, it's so that that kid will be happy. It is very important for a child to know what losing feels like. It is important for a child to know what failure feels like. That's being a human. We carry them and coddle them and coddle them and coddle them. And then we send them to college and then they need safe spaces in college. Then they graduate college and they, they have to relearn life all over again. Because if they don't, they are useless. Because there is such a thing as failure. Such a thing as knowing that it's not about me. There's a bigger purpose. Okay, I've already gone over that. The last part of this is we need all of this all the time. Humility. Joy, brokenness. We need to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven. Why don't you stand with me? <clears throat> I want us to uh, pray together and then um, to encourage you, you to stay right where you are. I just want to pray for us and then just to encourage you to stay right where you are. Maybe, maybe come to the altar and spend some time maybe along the front seats Part of the deal with this is kind of getting out of your space and, and um, getting on your face before God. Kneel down, maybe sit down or something. But just to spend a few minutes before you leave here just saying, God, I ask you to wash me clean. Here's one of the things that I know that happens with this. It's so difficult for us as human beings and our schedules and all the other stuff just to have a little bit of time where we're saying, Jesus, forgive me. Just wash me. This, this is not good enough. This isn't accomplishing everything that we need to accomplish by just spending a few minutes here, but it's a good starting point. That's, that's basically why I'm doing this, a starting point. So just spend a minute or two before you leave, before you go into the rush of today and getting lunch and doing all the stuff or whatever, just spend a few minutes just saying, Lord, just wash me. Just wash me. I repent. I need to be clean. And maybe specifically in an area of your life, Lord, I need joy back in this area of my life. Maybe one of the ways that you get to that is you say, Lord, forgive me for the things of that era of my life and bring that joy back. Just quote David. Just quote him. Okay? So, Lord, we, we step before you knowing that we're sinners. I say the same thing David said. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But Jesus, you are the forgiver. Lord, I'm a sinner, but you're the redeemer. Lord, I, I am dirty, but you can clean me. So wash us clean. Wash us clean. Lord, we need your, your blood just to wash over our minds and our hearts make us right with our Heavenly Father. To get into every, every specific area of our life and, and clean it out. 
to power wash all the stuff, all the, 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 the uh, crevices in our spirit and our mind. Wash it out. Jesus, we need you. Lord, I also pray that you restore the joy back to our spirit and our salvation. Restore the joy to serving you. Restore the joy to all the different areas of our life, relationships, family, workplace. God, restore the joy that comes from knowing that we're serving you more than anything else. That we're serving you more than our our spouse. that, That we're not serving them, we're serving you. That we're serving you more in our workplace. We don't serve our workplace. We don't serve our paycheck. We serve you. And Lord, you restore the joy into these circumstances when we put you first. In Jesus' name. So God, wash us clean. Wash us. Wash us clean. In Jesus' name. So I just want to encourage you, spend a few minutes before you take off, find you a place, sit down, kneel down somewhere, and just just spend a little bit of time just talking to the Lord, Lord, just wash me, clean me. Go through the stuff. You'll have a list pretty quick in your head if if you go down that road. And just spend a little bit of time with him uh, before you take off, okay? So have a good rest of your day.